Welcome to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. Welcome into Soccer Morning here on Backheel.com. I hope your Friday morning is going smoothly. Hope there's no weather to deal with. I hope your coffee is hot. Your kids are well-behaved and off to school by now. Well, if you're on the West Coast, I'm sure that school has yet to start. But we are getting underway here with a big uh, show of soccer talk, as we always do, heading into a big weekend of matches. The Bundesliga returns. There's certainly something to talk about there. You've got the Premier League and a massive, massive showdown between Manchester City and Chelsea with uh, potentially a title on the line. A couple of big absences from that match. News that Diego Costa will miss. It. We'll, we'll talk about that in the headlines here in a second. We got news this week about New York City FC, and that's going to be the reason for one of our guests joining us. Let's do that. Let's talk about those guests. First up, in a couple of minutes, Michael Goodman from Grantland will join us. He has a statistical look <clears throat> Excuse me, at Borussia Dortmund's struggles in the first half of the Bundesliga season. This is a club with, uh, in the last couple of years, one of the best clubs in Europe. A couple of Bundesliga titles couple of second-place finishes, obviously Champions League success, and things have just not gone well so far in 2014-2015. So Michael join us in a couple of minutes. We'll, talk, we'll take a look at his piece at Grantland and the statistical reasons why Dortmund is struggling, in addition to things like luck and injuries. And then at 10.30, Raf, uh, Rafael Naboa y Rivera will join us to talk about in, uh, NYCFC and the shakeup at the top of that organization. Tim Pernetti is moving on leaving the club that he just joined a year ago to go to IMG. And in his place, uh, Tom Glick is the name, I believe. We'll talk to Raph about what this means and the perception issues that NYCFC has right now. Look, you can be excited about the product that's going to be coming on the field in New York. I think there's plenty of reason to be excited about some of the names that have been signed up, even if you have to wait on Frank Lampard. But there are some issues there in terms of the perception of what NYCFC is so far where they're being run from. And I want to know from Raf whether or not those things bother him. It's clearly an issue of uh, most of the, the top-level stuff of that club going through Manchester. Is that an issue for you guys? Let's do the headlines here before we get to Mike. Juan Agadello has come back to MLS. Finally, Juan Agadello has come back to MLS, and he's coming back to the club he left. The New England Revolution have signed Juan Agadello. Official announcement expected today. Juan went ahead and uh, let everybody know on Twitter that he will be rejoining the New England Revolution and playing the MLS season. This came look, this from a from a club perspective, this is a, a huge move for the Revolution. He adds something to that attack that they just didn't have last season. You could argue that this is the player that puts the Revolution over the top. If they can replicate their 2014, they are now a favorite in the Eastern Conference, potentially an MLS Cup favorite. The LA Galaxy have taken a step back, or at least treaded water. Yeah, the Seattle Sounders, they're always going to be there. Sporting Kansas City, have they gotten a lot a lot better? There's there's clearly some issues. Um, uh, DC United of, of consistency, as they also deal with a Champions League campaign to start their season. So it, it is the year for the New England Revolution, and now Juan Agadella will join them. From a player perspective, Juan, w- what the hell, man? What the hell? All of this, we went through all of this, and you come back to MLS. I mean, I'm glad that you're back. I'm excited to see you play. I'm still a supporter of Juan Agadello as a player. But all of this sitting, you know, going to England, not getting a work permit, Cyprus nonsense in the mix, not going to England, or not going to Germany, not going to France. 
Go read Greg Seltzer's blog at No Short Corners and find out just how many suitors Juan Agudelo had during his stint not playing. And, and, and it's, it's, it kind of boggles the mind a bit, and now he's coming back to MLS. And by the way, the man's got me blocked on Twitter. Can I, can I get an explanation? I know I'm not owed an explanation, but I don't know what I did. I think I've been pretty consistent on this program, backing Juan Agudelo as a player, wanting to see the, all I want to do is see the man play. I don't know. Something happened. Our relationship went south somewhere. Not that we actually had one. San Francisco 49ers owners, the Yorks, Jed York, uh, principal among them, have announced that they are or were announced yesterday at an event State of the City addressed in Sacramento as new investors in the Sacramento Republic MLS push. This is big in terms of putting Sacramento in the front of the line for the next expansion franchise. Mayor Kevin Johnson, the former basketball player who's now the mayor of uh, Sacramento disclosed the 49ers investment Thursday night with his customary flourish. I'm reading from the Sacramento Bee here at his annual state of the city speech at Memorial Auditorium. Hundreds of Sacramentans, including scores of Republic FC fans stood and cheered as Johnson introduced 49ers chief executive Jed York, who was sitting in the front row, got a picture of Jed York here wearing a Republic FC uh, scarf. It is clearly a big day in Sacramento to have the 49ers on board. And I saw it disclosed that the 49ers say that more of their season ticket holders come from Sacramento than from San Francisco, hence their involvement. My question, and we'll get into this later on in, in more shows, is what this means for the relationship between the 49ers and the San Jose Earthquakes. The Earthquakes have played a couple of games, and I believe have an agreement to play some games, their big matches, uh, potentially that California Classico at Levi Stadium. I, I don't know if the if this changes anything on that front, but it will be interesting to see it again from an MLS perspective, Sacramento now front of the line. Hard to imagine them not being that with the Sacramento Kings also involved and now the 49ers. Diego Costa's three-game ban for stamping on Emery Khan has been upheld. That means he'll miss certainly this weekend's match against Manchester City. Again, that's a massive, massive clash in the Premier League. I don't know that you, there was some question over the intent of this. I don't know how you could possibly see this as anything other than a stamp by Diego Costa. And you, you got Pellegrini in the news saying, hey, look, I love him, love him as a player, but he can't do this stuff. And I completely, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. I completely agree. I don't, I don't, Diego Costa is a, a, an excellent player. And I love his story. Having not played organized soccer until he was in his mid-teens, a guy who sort of burst onto the scene. He's big, he's strong, he creates his own shot, he's fantastic. Don't need to do this stuff. Fix it. Andre Sherlow, speaking of Chelsea, Andre Sherlow will join Wolfsburg from Chelsea. Chelsea is uh, looking at Juan Cuadrado as a replacement. Uh, I didn't check on the numbers here, but uh, clearly Andre Sherlow wanting to get playing time, wants to go back to Germany. Chelsea is going to make that happen. Uh, bad news on the, on the U.S. Uh, U-20 front, the U.S. potentially senior team front, and certainly for Fulham, Emerson Hyman will miss six weeks with a broken collarbone. That's not good news for a young player who was on the up, certainly showed well at the U-20 championships, uh, CONCACAF U-20 championships down in Jamaica over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Emerson Hyman, get healthy. Matches. We've got plenty of matches today, tomorrow, Sunday. Your your weekend is full of soccer. Wolfsburg and Bayern, and that's a, a game I'm highlighting because um, obviously two good teams in the Bundesliga the first game back from the winter break for the Bundesliga, you have uh, you have Bayern, uh, sorry, um, Bayer Leverkusen taking on Borussia Dortmund. The aforementioned Borussia Dortmund, not a big match in terms of the standings, but a big match for Dortmund to get their second half campaign underway, see them climb out of the relegation zone. 
Also today, PSG and Ren, Caretro and Santos, Tijuana and Morelli, a couple of good games there in the uh, in Liga MX. Uh, I mentioned Chelsea and City several times already. No reason to go there. Uh, no Diego Costa is a big deal for Chelsea. Sunday. Sunday is old firm day. Whether you believe in the uh, relevancy of the Scottish Premier League or not, it's clearly a big match still. You have an old firm match uh, with the Rangers and uh, and Celtic, which doesn't happen anymore because of Rangers' obvious problems uh, dropping down multiple divisions in light of their financial issues. And by the way, that Mike Ashley thing, man, if you're a Rangers fan and Mike Ashley's coming in, I don't know what to make of that. Let's take a break. When we come back, Mike L. Goodman from Grantland will join us. We'll talk about Borussia Dortmund, the statistical reasons why they are where they are and what might happen to fix it. Don't go anywhere. Soccer morning, backheel.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning and joined on the telephone by Mike L. Goodman, writer over at Grantland, one of those guys who does the statistical stuff. Mike, how are you, sir? Doing great. Happy to be here. A lot of insight from Mike's stuff in terms of of stats and, and, and a way to look at some of the uh, the happenings. We're going to focus on the Bundesliga with Mike today, but he's done some other uh, great work looking at stats and, and how they indicate why things are going wrong or right for various teams. And in this case, Mike, I think the piece that I want to talk about first is your piece on Borussia Dortmund. This is a club that, at least in the last couple of years, people have come to think of as one of the best in Europe, period, end of story. It, it's Borussia Dortmund right up there with obviously Bayern Munich, but also the, the, the big teams in Spain and England. And there, here they are sitting next to last in the Bundesliga table as the, the second half of the season starts after the winter break in Germany. And I read through your piece and, and I see all of these things and I'm thinking, okay, is this for me, and, I, and, and we can talk about the, the individual numbers here in a second, but is this an issue that can be fixed? I mean, I, yeah, it's a good question. I think it depends on how you define fixed. I would be shocked if, if they were down in relegation territory at the end of the season, flat, flat out floored. But, I mean, we're halfway through the season. I, I think it's, it's an incredibly difficult, if not impossible, ask to expect them to be contending for a European place, even though realistically they're only 12 points out of, out of fourth place, even though they're in 16th, 17th. Sure. The, 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 the way that the table looks in terms of the places is probably worse than their actual point standing. But some of the things that you talk about in, in terms of what their problems have been, I mean, look, we know injuries, and I think we should absolutely throw that out there. That is a major problem for Dortmund. It's yeah. not, and it's not it's, just, you, you, go ahead. You need to start there. That's the right place to start. I mean, I I think that maybe some people have uh, have missed, especially those who don't watch the Bundesliga week to week, have missed the number of injuries and, and the impact on the way that they play. Yeah, and Dortmund's style is physically so demanding. I mean, they're high paced, high tempo, lots of pressing. So when you lose, you know, significant midfielders like Ilkay Gundogan and and Bender misses significant time, and and you're forced to turn to Sebastian Kiel, who's 34 years old, it, it's going to create large problems in the middle, you know, in the middle of your both your attack and defensive structure. 
Um, and it's not just that. Uh, Mats Hummels, who's one of the best defenders in the world, is in a significant, significant time. Uh, and then in attack, Marco Royce, who is the guy that was supposed to, you know, ease the transition and replace uh, Goethe and Lewandowski as they left, as they left for Bayern, has just had a, a horrible year for injuries. He missed the World Cup. He got healthy. He came back. He had another horrible injury, and now he's just hopefully coming back into form for the second half of the season. Is it simplistic for me to view this through the prism of, of Bayern Munich being just too big and, and gobbling up too much talent? Have we seen how, how they you know they grab anybody who's of reasonable quality in, in the Bundesliga, certainly, and they have poached players from, from Borussia Dortmund, and that's, you know, you yeah, it, I, I feel like... It has an effect. It does. Um, but you you would think that it has an effect in narrowing the gap between Dortmund and the, the likes of Wolfsburg and Leverkusen. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you shouldn't forget, Dortmund was solidly the best or second best team in the Bundesliga for the last five years. This isn't a case where, you know, they were first among non-Bayern equals. Dortmund won the league two years in a row and then came in second two years in a row. They were solidly better than everybody not named Bayern. Um, so the fact that it, you wouldn't want to attribute a fall from second to 17th down to losing two players to your biggest rivals. No, certainly not, but uh, you, you do sort of look at the, the razor-thin margins for everybody who isn't Bayern Munich in that league. Yeah. Uh, it, it can very easily go south, and I, one of the things that you uh, that you address in the piece uh, from a statistical standpoint is the fact that this is a team that likes to keep the ball, and and that's certainly been Klopp's mo. And and one of the things that gets has them so celebrated the last couple of seasons, and yet they're not turning those that possession into real chances. Yeah, it, it's interesting because over the course of Dortmund's success, they have sort of evolved as a team. Uh, they started off as a team that was. Uh, predicated almost completely on lightning-fast counterattacks. Um, and then as the personnel evolved, uh, and as they sort of solidified their place at the top of the table, that morphed into enjoying more possession and being able to work that possession for better shots. And this year they seem as if they're caught in between, because while they still enjoy a lot of possession, they aren't turning that possession into what's happening is they're getting a lot of shots blocked. They're mm -hmm. getting more shots blocked than you would expect a team of their talent level to do, especially given how much they keep the ball. So you have to wonder, is all that possession going towards becoming more effective or are they sort of drawing themselves out of shape without the, the benefit on the other end of creating better chances? You know, and again, I think I'm going to point to the margins here and certainly a balance issue for Dortmund in, in the way that they've evolved and, and come to play, and then you take out a couple of those key names, Lewandowski comes to mind first and foremost, and suddenly yeah. suddenly you don't have exactly the right player to do that. And and you know, how much of that how much of this is do we how much do we put on Klopp and either a, a resistance to to adjusting with what he's got so right at the moment, or is he is he right to stick with it and it eventually will right itself? Yeah, it's it's hard to blame Klopp, per se, because you also have to keep in mind that he's the guy that, that found and fostered the, the players they left, the team that left. Um, and he also found guys like Royce and, and Goodigan to come in and, and sort of bolster the squad, and those guys then went and got hurt. Um, I think that when you, you know, Dortmund is such a, a highly trained and sort of regimented squad in a lot of ways 
it, it does take time for pieces to gel. And you expect that maybe there would be struggles working in guys like Obamayan, who's actually been quite good, and Cheryl Mobley, who's been less good. Um, but then you sort of layer over really what's been a, a very unlucky season on top of everything else. And you sort of shrug and say, it can only get better from here, really. Well, you look at you, you look at their league struggles, and then you, you 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 know on the other side of that, juxtaposed to that, is their is their Champions League success. That's right. It, yeah. What's what accounts for the difference? That I mean, is there any any is there a statistical ex- explanation for that? Is it simply they are a little bit sharper in the Champions League than they have been in the league? Is there a player rotation issue? What's going on? Okay, so you can you can look at a couple of things. One of the one of the big indicators that lots of people like to look to is they look at, you know, how many mistakes Dortmund has made that have led to goals, defensive errors that lead to goals. And they've made many more of those in the Bundesliga than they have in the Champions League. But the question is, is that necessarily something that's in their control? Or is it just sort of how the cosmic dice end up rolling? Because what we don't know is really what's happening. Is it just sort of those shots that they're giving up in the Bundesliga are being converted by their opponents and not in the Champions League, which would almost be the opposite of what you'd expect right. given the, the level of talent. Or can we actually say that they're making more mistakes in the Bundesliga than the Champions League, which again seems somewhat unlikely uh, when, you're, when you're talking about levels of competition. There haven't been really dramatic changes in player personnel or rotation or things of that nature. So you're tempted to basically say that what's what's going on is a little bit of, of random chance in that their errors have all been concentrated in one competition and supposed to maybe more evenly spread out across the two where you would have seen them be less dominant in the Champions League but probably still move through but also be more mid-table in the Bundesliga where you'd look and say, oh, well, it's a little bit of a disappointing season, but not this abject disaster that they're looking at at the moment. I'm talking to Michael Goodman from Grantland, uh, specifically about Borussia Dortmund. We're going to get to some other Bundesliga topics here uh, in just a minute. But I, I got to ask you, Mike, as you look at what's happened, and, and again, some of this, as you said, is, is random chance, and some of it is bad luck, and, and injuries are a major factor here. But I, I consider Jurgen Klopp and, and how how high his star rose during their best seasons and during their their Bundesliga titles and and Champions League success and and I wonder now if it's commensurately going the other direction or if it's simply you know if we simply say well you know we could toss this out as a as an abnormality this is not necessarily his fault he is still a fantastic coach so personally I would I would not toss it out. You always want to take into account new information, but I would not say that it takes away from, from his status as a coach. But you do have to consider, if this was happening in the Premier League, and you can see it to a lesser degree with, say, a team like Everton and Roberto Martinez, um, how differently Martinez is, is perceived this year when, it's, when Everton's going through a disappointing, you know, very disappointing half-season versus last season when they challenged unexpectedly for the Champions League and he was a genius. So it is perhaps a good lesson in terms of judging people less harshly, both on the upswings and the downswings. And, you know, Klopp's legacy is not just no. getting to the finals of the Champions League. It's putting together, it's building Dortmund into a contender. Um, it's taking them from mid-table to by far the second best team in the Bundesliga. Mm. So does one season cancel all that out? No. 
especially when you're looking at the way the season has occurred. But it does make you at least consider other aspects of what can go wrong. Now, they are uh, clearly not the second-best team in the Bundesliga at the moment, at least as the table nope. stands. Now, you do uh, you mentioned before we came on the air, you got a piece coming up on Wolfsburg and, and Bayer Leverkusen that, that, are, that is the second and third-best team in the league right now, both of them trailing, obviously, Bayern Munich by a wide margin. Uh, but in terms of the strength of the Bundesliga, first, you know, talk about your piece and what you're going to address, and then in terms of the strength of the Bundesliga, how good is that second tier? Munich, Bayern Munich's on a level all by themselves. Yeah, I mean, Bayern or Bayern, and it's they're just so clearly ahead of everybody who's not named, say, Real Madrid. Um, but no, the, the the sort of second tier in the Bundesliga is yeah, it's always hard to compare leagues. But what what you can say definitively, and what I talk about in in the piece, is how fun and unique both of those teams are. Uh, looking at um, Kevin De Bruyne, who you know we may all remember from absolutely eviscerating the U.S. at the World Cup. <laughs> I mean, his he, you know the way he played for Belgium, and then this year the way he's playing for Wolfsburg is is outstanding, and he's just he. He's getting a lot of attention. He deserves even more of it. He's just perhaps the best, you know, he's the best non-Bayern playmaker in, in Germany by far. And then Leverkusen are, you know, we were talking before about Dortmund being intense and high-paced uh, counter-attacking team. Leverkusen take that to a whole nother plane. Uh, they, you know, they, they play soccer almost like it's hockey uh, in terms of the up and down and the pace and, and you know, generating shots and moving, you know, moving the ball up the field quickly, and you know, really not getting a damn at all about keeping it. Is that uh, is I, 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 I mean, look, I, I love when styles make matches. I like taking that yeah. from that from boxing. It, it's one of those things where you you can see two teams who are playing relatively the same um, stylistic, uh, taking the same stylistic approach, and it doesn't necessarily make for a great match. How does Leverkusen use that attitude, that sort of, um, you know, maker, you know, um, whatever you call I can't remember what you called it in the piece. It's helter-skelter or something along those lines. Yeah. How do they use that, and, and is, it, is, it, is that something that's a, you know, that you can turn into a... a a club, um, I, I, a club. I don't know what I'm what I'm looking for here. Sure, you can you can you can make it an ethos, basically. It's sort of a repeatable strategy where you, you know, you think of you know to to look at other sports. You think of somebody like Rick Pitino as, as a as a college basketball coach, and what he's done is he's instituted a full court pressing style, and then you bring in the people who best execute that style which are not necessarily the people who are best for other styles. Right. And it gives you sort of a comparative advantage when recruiting. Um, it gives you an advantage in that other people aren't playing against that style every week. Um, so uh, Leverkusen's coach, Roger Schmidt, who they brought him before this season from um, Red Bull Salzburg, where he'd also done the same thing, made this name for himself, where he just he took what other people were doing and he took it to even more of an extreme. Um, no, it's 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 an open question as to where, when that meets sort of top level of defensively stalwart competition. Mm. You know, when you come up against the Josie Mourinho, when you come up against an Atletico Madrid, are, are you basically just going to be repeatedly throwing yourself on the sword over and over again and leaving yourself horribly exposed, or or can this sort of relentlessness overcome a, a well drilled 
but more conservatively defensively oriented team. It, and Leverkusen have struggled against Bayern Munich when they've come up against them sure. in sort of a similar way. Well, obviously, you know, when you get to that top echelon, I think what we're usually talking about is that the the technical ability, the understanding, the sort of well drilled nature of a of a Barcelona, of a Bayern Munich, of a Real Madrid, that kind of overtakes any 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 issues in terms of what the style, what problems the style could create, except, you know, when we see these trends of, of teams parking the bus and squeaking out a one nothing against a team that's much more superior. In this case, is there, I guess it's going to lead me into a question, with Leverkusen, is it all or nothing? And can they, we, we talk a lot about plan B, Mike. Is there a plan B for Leverkusen that they can no, use? There's no, there's no plan B. But I would also say that I'm not... I'm not sure that I, I necessarily agree with the the reliance on a plan B. I mean, realistically speaking, Barcelona was the best team we've seen in, in their generation easily, and they didn't have a plan B. Mm-hmm. Their plan was to, you know, force their plan A down your throat no matter what. Uh, and that worked. And when you have, at the, at the very top echelons of the game, when you have that talent, if your primary goal is to implement your plan, you can do that. Now, Leverkusen doesn't have that elite level of talent, and I think it remains to be seen whether this approach at the top levels, you know, which is so extreme, um, is can be applied. Um, you know, I think we, we've seen quite clearly that it can take limited amounts of talent and elevate it. I'm not sure it can... We haven't seen yet, and I don't know that necessarily anybody's tried at a place where there's already elite talent, can it elevate it above other teams with elite talent? Mm. You know, this is why this game is so fascinating. It's not. We often talk about whether it's it's the players who make these teams successful, and and managers are sort of there along for the ride, massaging personalities, putting you know putting names on a team sheet. But there can be individuals who who directly impact something like a single season or or a couple of seasons with their ideas, with something that is either not unique or at least making everybody else uncomfortable. And that's, uh, I think that's probably what's interesting here. Yeah, I, absolutely. And, and to bring it back to Dortmund, um, what Roger Smith is doing at Leverkusen is clearly has its roots in, in Klopp at Dortmund. Um, and and the, the sort of resurgence of, of counter-pressing around the top levels of the game, of, of focusing immediately defensively on recovering the ball when you lose it rather than dropping into a defensive shape is in large part down to Klopp. And, and he was the first person in years to sort of emphasize that as your con- controlling defensive strategy. And so when we talk about Klopp's legacy and how should this year's Dortmund team affect that, I think it's important to understand that a lot of what's going on in the game today originates back to his Dortmund teams of, of, of four or five years ago. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Dortmund the rest of the Bundesliga campaign. Obviously, as I mentioned, still in the Champions League, I have, they have Juventus coming up um, in, in the next uh, in the next round. Uh, is, is there any chance at all? Very, very briefly, Mike, is there any chance at all that we see Bar- that we see Borussia Dortmund win the Champions League and get relegated? <laughs> There's always a chance, but I would be really surprised. All right. Mike L. Goodman from Grantland. Follow him on Twitter, the M underscore L underscore G. Mike, appreciate your time and your insight. Thanks a lot. You bet. Have a great, have a great time. There we go. Uh, let's take a break. We'll come back. Rafael Nabora, Eva Rivera will join us. We'll talk NYCFC. Another change at the top. What's the, uh, what's the outlook here heading into the 2015 season? Their first one ever. Don't go anywhere. Soccer morning. Backheel.com. 
Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. We turn now to MLS and one of the new teams entering the league in 2015. New York City FC from HudsonRiverBlue.com, the SB Nation blog for NYCFC. We have Rafael Naboa Rivera on the line. How, Raf, how are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Now, the reason we've grabbed you is, is it, look, we'll, we'll take a big picture look at NYCFC as preparations are underway for the inaugural season. Players are out on a training field. Uh, Jason Christ is putting them through their paces. You, mm-hmm. You've got some pieces in place that are rather exciting. Obviously, McDiscrude is a is a player for this club now. That's a big deal. But yeah. the most recent news when it pertains to NYCFC is the the uh, departure of Tim Pernetti, who was the chief business officer uh, right. for IMG College Multimedia. This is a guy who came from Rutgers, uh, where he was the AD. Now, he, and he moved over to NYCFC. And a lot of people thought this was a good thing, mm-hmm. despite some issues with maybe his uh, recent past at Rutgers, because he had the connections, because he knew New York, he knew these people, he had the marketing clout uh, to bring something good for NYCFC. And now he's gone before the first game is played. What does this mean, Raf? So as it turns out, he's actually going to be sticking through the first game. Okay. Um, he and the new president, because the the team didn't have a president up to you know before Tom Glick, who's the new guy, came on board. Um, Tim Pernetti was what was called the chief business officer, so he was handling a lot of the merchandising stuff, a lot of the you know financial side of the club. Uh, Glick is more of your traditional club president type, and so. Pernetti's going Pernetti's doing what's basically referred to as a right seat ride, you know, sort of a transition process with Tom Glick so that the two of them, you know, know what's going on. They can do a proper handoff of responsibilities and so forth. Uh, Glick comes from Manchester City. He was the chief commercial officer at the club and the chief marketing officer at the club. And so he was responsible for a lot of the global marketing specifically that, Manchester City has been doing over the last few years. So a lot of the summer tours, the participation in stuff like the International Champions Cup, um, things like that, global sponsorships, um, a lot of the stuff that that came about with the creation of that big umbrella organization, City Football Group. Mm-hmm. Um, he was responsible for a lot of that, the structuring of that, you know, how that interplay works out between Manchester City, New York City FC, um, and then also Melbourne City in the A-League in Australia, and the Japanese club, Yokohama F. Marinos. Mm -hmm. So Glick was responsible for a lot of that. So from one perspective, you can say, okay, this is a bad thing because, you know, it really emphasizes the fact that Manchester City, you know, 3,000 miles away is sort of the, you know, the puppet master. The, 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 the puppet master. I didn't want to use that term, but yeah, sort of the you know the, the folks directing everything. Uh, but from another perspective, it's a, you actually want a guy like Tom Glick as opposed to a guy like Tim Pernetti, and that's not a slam on Tim. Tim is a 
he's a great guy. The few dealings that I had with him, um, particularly around Frank Lampard and that whole thing, you know, he was always a very, you know, intense guy, very, you know, focused guy in terms of, you know, what are we going to do with the club? Uh, but Tom Glick has a lot of sports business experience. Before he went over to Manchester City, he was actually the CEO of Derby County FC. And Derby County is now a club in the second division of English soccer, the championship. Um, and they're set to be promoted. They're actually in yeah. one of the two automatic promotion his, spots. His, his resume, his CV, as the Brits would say, is is pretty impressive. Uh, minor league, it is minor league baseball. Minor league baseball. Several years in the NBA. VP of marketing and team business operations at NBA headquarters in in New York City. Chief marketing officer for the New Jersey Nets. Chief mm-hmm. executive officer at Derby County, as you said. Chief commercial and marketing officer for Manchester City, and managing yeah. director of City Football Marketing. So yeah, his his background. Now like, you 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 we did. I said I said puppet master. You didn't say that. But right. but again, I think perception is the issue that NYC has has had to deal with through right. the from the very beginning. Raph, I'm not going to make this just about Frank Lampard. I'm going to make this no, about no. the branding, the colors they chose, the the market, the initial marketing burst, which was all city players doing stuff around New York City. I didn't understand that at all, and now we have this this thing again. This is a it's mm-hmm. a change at the top, and as you said, just to make it clear, Tim Pernetti will stay through the first match, but. This is a, another change that seems to indicate more of that that Manchester City centralized control and and when you put in your press release mm-hmm. then you have to identify Tom Glick as a US national that tells me something about the way city is viewing their involvement and I when I say city I mean Manchester City their involvement mm-hmm. in this club so here's here's actually I'm glad you brought up the minor league experience Jason, because one of the things that you become very aware of when you're involved with a minor league outfit, whether that's minor league baseball, hockey, um, to a far lesser degree, minor league basketball, because just that just really hasn't been um, as around Continental Basketball Association, notwithstanding. Um, but, you know, when you talk about minor league hockey and minor league basketball, you're talking about doing a lot of really intensive public outreach. And I think, you know, when you talk about and when other people talk about, you know, the Frank Lampard stuff and they talk about the, um, you know, the branding and the colors and the jersey and all that stuff, uh, it really goes to one of the big issues that this club has had, which is that the public outreach and the media outreach really just hasn't been what you'd want it to be. It's been very disorganized. Uh, It's very difficult uh, to get a hold of anybody in the sense of, you know, being able to get somebody, uh, you know, to comment on the situation or to get information on the situation. You know, we found out about Tom Glick, not because, you know, they sent out an, not because the club sent out a statement or anything like that. Um, I found out about it because Darren Rovell tweeted about it, you know, and so then, you know, we had to scramble and I'm emailing people and trying to get a hold of folks that I know at the club. And, you know, finally we got, you know, something posted on the news page for the club, you know, and that's where that whole U S national reference comes to. And I think when you get somebody, the good thing is, and we'll have to see, let me stipulate that, that we'll have to see, um, 
the good thing about having somebody like Tom Glick with his minor league experience, with his NBA experience, his American sports experience is that he comes to this from an American sports marketing background and an American sports uh, public outreach background. And so one would hope that that sort of thing basically gets ramped up because people forget around the whole Lampard thing and the rollout of the jersey. But the club's outreach up until those points was actually really good in terms of emphasizing the the fact that they wanted this to be a New York-based club, that they wanted this club, New York City FC, to reflect you know, the five boroughs. Um, for Ron Soriano went on record that, you know, it had to be a New York City club. You know, Tim Pernetti, when he was around, mentioned that. So did Claudia Reyna. So did Jason Kreis. You know, and it was something that they were hammering over and over. I, I generally give him a, a slide on the, you know, having that inaugural New York City FC introduction video featuring Manchester City players because they were there for a friendly, um, and it was the first thing. So, you know, I wasn't expecting them to roll out actual, you know, New York City players because there were simply weren't any. Sure, but you know, aside from that, maybe get the Jersey rollout. Maybe get you know, all this. Maybe get ahead. maybe get New York City kids playing or something. I mean, maybe, exactly. I mean, exactly. do something New York. Don't do. Don't bring. Right. Don't show me Yaya Torre in front of the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, that's great. That's sure. You know, it's nice. And city has a city has a very. They do a very good job with their. Their digital stuff. I actually, you know, think that they've mm-hmm. been a leader in England and all of that, and a yeah. leader in Europe. But again, that that strategy doesn't translate when you are not when you are making it clear mm-hmm. that that NYCFC is is essentially subsidiary to to Manchester City. And I, I and look, we can know that, but you have to create the ability for the fans to have the cognitive dissonance, Ralph. right? And I think, and you know, one last thing, you know, before we start talking about other things. I think that New York City has actually been taking some fairly small steps, but still they're real steps in terms of trying to emphasize their own identity in the sense that um, they're going ahead and they're talking about they have this new system called City Voice where you know fans can and supporters of New York City FC can sort of feel that they have some kind of stake in some of the public outreach, marketing outreach decisions of the club, choosing the captain's armbands, for example, was a big one, um, you know, featuring actual supporters of the club, uh, choosing the pregame music and that sort of thing. So that to me, you know, you look at your positives and you look at your negatives, um, what's past is past, you know, I mean, that's not going to stop me from giving a critique or being critical where it needs to be. Um, you know, I'll, I'm basically in a wait and see pattern with Tom Glick. I don't see anything that would raise like alarm bells. Now, if it had, if they had brought in somebody who was strictly like a city guy, strictly, um, you know, had grown up in city, was from Manchester, you know, spoke with a Mancunian accent, the whole nine yards. That's a different story, you know. I understand. Yeah, absolutely. Again, but I mean, the the club is is fighting some. Perception issues on a on a number of fronts. That's that's right. obviously just one of them. The other one is the uh, the obvious issue with Frank Lampard. He mm-hmm. signed, but he didn't sign, and and now right. and now the fans are left with the with the aftermath of that. It, it, since then, we've been it's a couple weeks now since all of that that broke. Uh, yeah. Raf, how do you think the community has handled that? And do you think it's really pushed some people away? 
Uh, sure, it's pushed some people away. Um, you know, if I monitored the community opinion, not just on my site, but, you know, on Reddit, on Twitter, um, on the forums that are out there in terms of talking to people, sure, it, it absolutely pushed some people aside. Some people kind of shrugged their shoulders and, you know, they were like, well, you know, this is the reality of, um, you know, big time soccer. You know, this is what happens. You know, other people were, you know, rightfully furious because they felt like they had been lied to. I think um, at this point now, you know, people have sort of cycled through um, the five stages, so to speak. Um, you know, there was denial and then there was, you know, anger and then all the rest. Um, and I think, you know, people are now, now that you actually have training camp, now that you actually um, have folks that are being signed, you know, you had the draft and that sort of stuff. A lot of that has sort of receded into the background. Uh but New York's New York City fans are really a tough bunch. So, you know, don't be surprised if that resurfaces again when Frank Lampard comes back in July. It, it probably all will. And and I guess what we need to talk about now, Raf, is the is the preparations for the season and the preparations for the opener. And you look at the roster, uh you look I mean a lot of this is a lot of the way that, that people outside of New York who are not fans of this club and outside of Orlando is looking at this is, is in opposition to the other expansion side. That's, that's what we're going to judge NYC FC uh, against right. at least to, to start. But uh, you have to give me your sense of where you think this team is in the process of being. Look, the goal is to win MLS Cup, of course. Do we think right. that's going to happen in the first year? No, probably not. So where are they in the process of reaching a competitive level that has them at least hovering around sixth place come uh, come August or September? I think they're doing okay, quite frankly. I, You know, there was some degree of concern uh, before the expansion draft, uh, before the MLS Super Draft. Uh, but at this point in time, you know, they've got between 23 and 25 players on the roster. Um, I say between 23 and 25 because there are a couple of signings that had, just haven't been made official. Javier Calle um, and Adam Nemich of Slovakia being the two that we're talking about here. Um, but aside from that, the roster's looking fairly solid. It's your standard MLS roster. One thing that I would say when you're comparing Orlando City and you're comparing New York City, um, and this is not, you know, a slam at Orlando City or anything like that. Orlando City kind of has an advantage because they've been a club mm -hmm. for the past few years. The same way that, you know, let's say Sacramento Republic, if they were to become an MLS club, um, you know, down the line, they would have a little bit of advantage because they've already been doing a lot of the roster construction, a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff that you that you have with uh, building a team, whereas New York City has been sort of going from zero to 60. Uh, that being said, you know, training camp started, and so you've got, you know, a pretty solid roster. You've got three great goalkeepers, I think, um, you know, between Akira Fitzgerald, you've got Ryan Mira, and you've got Josh Saunders. I think the real question right now is uh, Ryan Mira, back in 2012 for those first few months was an absolute rock star for the New York Red Bulls, but he just hasn't played at all. And so, you know, does he have the edge over somebody like Akira Fitzgerald, who's been absolutely solid for the Carolina Red Hawks, and now he's taking that next step and playing in MLS? You know, somebody like Josh Saunders, um, 
nothing against him. He won. He's won a ton of trophies throughout his professional career. Um, I think, you know, including this past season with in NASL with the San Antonio Scorpions. Um, but I think he's now more of your Marcus Hahnemann, you know, veteran clubhouse leader type guy. Um, you know, the back line is looking pretty solid. Um, at right back, you've got Jeb Brofsky and you've got Josh Williams. Uh, both of those guys are young. They're 26, so they really haven't hit their peak yet as uh, as defenders because that tends to come a little bit later in the career. Um, Josh Williams tends, is a bit more of that speedster type mm-hmm. uh, wing back that Jason Kreis seems to like when he was at RSL. Um, I think it's a toss-up as to who starts. Um, I think Jeb Brofsky... You know, the thing that makes me put Josh Williams over him is the fact that when he was on loan in Norway, he just simply didn't play that many games. Um, But I think we're going to really find out who's the number one, who's the number two at right back, um, you know, throughout training cramp and preseason. Then at center back, um, if George John is healthy and even 75 to 80% of the player that he was before being injured, he and Jason Hernandez are the backline rocks. Right. Um, George John was you know, widely considered the best center back who wasn't capped yet before he got injured. So that's going to be the key question. If he's not ready to go or he's not quite to that point yet, then Andres Mendoza um, is also a really solid center back. You know, the big question in the defense is left back. You've got Chris Wingert. He's a solid guy. Um, he's one of the guys that Christ picked up during the expansion draft. Uh, the issue with Wingert is he's 32 years old. And so you kind of have, you know, he's good now, but you kind of have to plan for the future mm-hmm. there. So you, know, you have somebody like Connor Brandt, whom they picked up in the MLS Super Draft. You know, he trialed out at left back during the combine. It's a whole other thing to be left back at the combine which is just, you know, a few days and a whole nother thing to do it in game time, you know, during the MLS season. So I wouldn't be surprised if he starts out with Wilmington, um, who's their USL pro affiliate. And Wilmington's a fantastic organization, by the way. Um, very well structured. They've got a good guy and, uh, and Carson Porter, who's, you know, who's coaching the team now has a lot of NCAA experience. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if Connor Brent is, you know, it's sort of a project for them. You know, from a rotational perspective, I wouldn't be surprised if Kwame Watson Cerebo spells out Chris w- Chris Wingert there a little bit, but they really do need a second left back mm-hmm. just from just from a rotational perspective. The biggest single need that the team has right now is probably um a defensive midfielder or a holding midfielder. Um the midfielders that New York City FC has right now. New York City FC have right now are either shuttlers, they're either box to box mids, or they're attacking midfielders. Um, you know, now they just signed a guy, Quadwo Poku, who, uh, who's from Ghana. He's done great stuff in, uh, the NPSL. Uh, he moved up to the NASL with the Atlanta Silverbacks. He didn't do as well. He started out, um, in Ghana as a holding midfielder. Um, and then he sort of moved up the field to be an attacking midfielder forward. But I wouldn't be surprised if, and I think he's 22 years old, he gets moved up, moved down the field back to holding slash defensive mid. Um, and so it ends up being kind of a 
John Michelobi type player for Chelsea, the kind of guy who started out up top as a number 10, you know, and then just moved back down the field and just has been sort of a rock um, for the team in that baseline position. Um, Then you've got Ned Grabovoy, who could be a defensive midfielder. He's played that position for RSL in the past. I'm not sure that you want him there, though. Um, You've got Andrew Jacobson, you know, who's, again, more of a box-to-box midfielder. Matt Dunn played with Chivas USA. Um, He, I think, and Quad and Poku are going to be the two sort of projects right now in terms of defensive holding midfielder. But if they can pick up a D-mid, either through what's left of the January transfer window or what's more likely um, through a trade or free agent, or I don't want to say free agent signing because MLS doesn't have free agents, (laughs) but you know what I'm saying? You know, somebody who's available um, who hasn't been picked up yet by MLS, Mm -hmm. then that's somebody that's a need that they really need to address before the season begins. Let me talk about your one of the star players in this team very quickly before I let you go, Raf. And it, it's, yeah. it's 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 mixed discord, and I'm going to take a yep. little bit of a lighthearted approach here. We we know what Mix can do. I mean, the the, the assist he had to Josie Altidore in mm-hmm. that game down in Chile is exactly what you want to see out of him as uh, in an yep. NYCFC shirt. Now he's listed. I went to the website, the team website, to just uh-huh. look at the roster, and I'm going down this route, and he's just listed as Mix. That's all he's, it's, it's, it doesn't say Mix Discrude. It doesn't say Mikel Discrude. It says Mix. So I'm yeah. guessing the man's just going to be Mix in everything the team does. I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I well, just, he, went, he went by Mix when he was in Norway. When he was with Rosenborg, you know, that's how he went. That's how he rolled. He was Mix. Um, I know, and, you know, I know. And I've, and I've heard stories that he gets upset if he's not allowed to wear Mix on his jersey. I'm assuming right. that the, the club's going to let him wear Mix. Yeah. No, I you know I wouldn't be surprised if if they let him work if they let him roll with mix. Um, <laughs> you know, and that actually would be again from a public outreach perspective. I think that would be one of the smartest things that they could do. Just little lighthearted things like that. And you know, when I stop and think about it, the thing that actually strikes me about this club is that. It's actually got the potential to be a really interesting club from a characterological perspective. And what I mean by that is that if you look at MLS clubs, by and large, they don't have characters. Yeah. You know, everybody shows up, you know, I'm just happy to be here. I'm just happy to contribute. At the end of the day, we just got to execute what we got to execute in order to stick to the game plan and be able to bring the three points home. And I could go through all the athlete cliches. You and I can both do that. They don't have characters. They don't have, you know, a Zlatan Ibrahimovic. You know, they don't have a Mario Balotelli type character. They don't have, you know, those sort of characters that are larger than life and sort of serve as, you know, a yin and yang to what you're putting out there. Um, and so I think with this club, you've definitely got that potential. You've got Mix, who's an interesting character on his own, you know, where it's whether it's the cat, whether it's the New York Yankees hats, um, whether it's the fact that he likes to go by mix, the fact that you know he's kind of a you know free spirited type individual. You've got the two mullet brothers. You've got Sebastian Velasquez and you've got Tommy McNamara, who both rock those amazing mullets um, and who both bring you know a real degree of flair for MLS to the field, especially um, Tommy who. 
before he got injured with Chivas was really just tearing it up. Yeah. The way that, you know, your traditional barrel-chested Argentinian, mm-hmm. you know, attacking midfielders do. You've got a guy like Jeb Brovsky who's rocking a man bun, um, <laughs> you know, and who's, you know, and whose Twitter profile page is literally, I think, him dressed up as a Civil War general. Um, you know, that's, you know, little weird things that you just don't see with any other club. I mean, nothing against Graham yeah. Susie. I love Graham. But, you know, you don't see Graham doing that. You yeah. don't see Matt Beasler doing that. Yeah. You know, God love him. You know, you don't see the vast majority, you know, I, you know, I have a great deal of affection for Landon Donovan. Um, but the thing that really made Donovan um, very interesting, you know, towards the tail end of his career is the fact that, you know, he kind of had a honey badger attitude. He would just you know, say things and not really care about what they have, you know, what impact yeah, they have. We, and I think MLS really needs a whole lot more. Of that I, I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. I'm going to have to move on very quickly here, Ralph, but yeah. I, I, I'm seeing something on Twitter. I don't know what this is referenced to. If this is, if this is going nowhere. I apologize. I, I've never yeah. heard of this group. Brown bag SC, which yeah. lists itself as a supporters group for NYCFC. So it's something about bringing up the ban that they have, uh, hope he is bringing up the ban. NYCFC has no supporters allowed at Yankee Stadium. What the heck is he talking? Are they talking about? Um, I don't know specifically what they're talking about there. I know from having gone to third rail meetings, you know, the big supporters group that New York City has, um, there's a, they won't be allowed to do smoke, um, and flares at New York City at, Yankee Stadium. Sure. Well, um, that's that, that's the that's, case. That's the case in most stadiums across the league. By the yeah, way, I think but, I think, and I think that's more of a logistical thing. I know that they can do flares and smoke at um, Red Bull Arena. Okay, because they're logistically set up to do that. They sure, have the smoke sure. pits where you can like douse the flares and you can douse the smoke real quickly. Um, the way the supporters. Um, club is the way the supporter section is set up at yankee stadium they're in section 236 237 if i'm not mistaken and you know that's you know the 200 level so they're not really quite field level um so that makes it a lot more difficult sure. if you're going to do something like that yeah. just from a public safety perspective yeah no, absolutely there there is some okay here's the list uh, tr- tr- uh trevor has given me the list no flag poles no banners fixed to any surface in the stadium no flags banners over six feet tall no electric mega- mm-hmm. uh, electronic megaphones no smoke all displays must be approved by Yankee Stadium. Look, that's just a that's just a function of being a tenant in a baseball venue that belongs to the biggest club in, in Major League Baseball. That's that's what that is. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, look, I understand if the if the supporters are frustrated over some of these rules, but mm-hmm. you got to realize that you are you're you're in somebody else's house for the time being. Maybe when NYCFC gets everything together, and we're not going to even bother talking stadium here, Raf. Then no, down the road, there's nothing, to talk about. there's nothing to talk about. When that happens, if that happens, then the supporters can get their way. And I'll tip this in since it's related to supporter groups. I saw something about uh, the LA Galaxy supporter groups being uh, having some things banned for next season because they threw uh, they threw streamers at MLS Cup final. Which, uh, if this is true, I'm not sure what the LA Galaxy are doing with their supporters group. Be a little. A little, uh, a little lighter with the punishment, guys. Raf, yeah. I, I appreciate the time, man. Uh, thank you very much for your insight. Hudson River Blue is the website over at SB Nation. Uh, definitely yeah. your source for everything NYCFC as we get closer and closer to the launch of that club. Real games on a real field with real players and everything else. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you're excited, Raf. Yeah, no, this is going to be a really... You always want to be able to cover a club when it's getting started from the very beginning. And I think... 
honestly, you know, they've got a lot of potential that it's yet to be realized, you know, now that, you know, players are actually taking the field, they're going to be playing games, you know, whether it's in Manchester City against St. Mirren and um, Brondby or in preseason, the Carolina Challenge Cup, you know, it's going to be really exciting to see this team take the field because I really think that they have a lot of potential to do stuff, particularly in a much weaker Eastern Conference. Raf Naboa Rivera again from Hudson River Blue over at SB Nation. Thanks for your time, Raf. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we will uh, open up the phone lines, get the Twitter machine running, anything you want to talk about heading into your weekend. It's soccer morning on backheel.com. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Run away, but hold her down with soggy clothes and breeze blocks. Shedders in your fever, scream me again. Never kisses, or do you ever send a full stop? Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we are, closing out a week of, ba- of Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Excuse me. Make sure you're over at 3NLFC. Dot com to buy your official Soccer Morning t-shirt. Make sure you're at backheel.com slash store to buy your official Soccer Morning mug. I have one. It's fantastic. Make sure you're on iTunes giving us a rating and a review. Make sure you're voting for us the podcast awards under sports. Make sure you're doing all of those things. 347-756-6276 is your phone number if you want to dive in. In the meantime... Well, I wait for those phone lines to heat up, and I know it's Friday, and you're low-key. If you want to jump in here, go ahead. While I wait for the phone lines to heat up, I'll, I'll talk about this story out of Asia. Fascinating to me. Australia in the Asian Cup final against South Korea. We know how good Australia can be. Certainly, they are a very much in line with what the United States has had to deal with is a a nation with several different competing sports for people's attention. You have a, a, a competition, a region that is not very strong in which they sort of dominate. Now, the United States has a foil in Mexico. Australia doesn't have a direct foil. You'd argue Japan has been that. Certainly, Japan has been very good at various times over the past couple of decades. So Australia is in, in very much in a similar situation with the United States. And now Australia, having chosen to join the Asian Confederation because Oceania was such a disaster, is on the is apparently pissing people off in the AFC. And there is a, a, a collection of countries, particularly in the Persian Gulf, who would like to kick Australia out of Asia. That is fascinating to me. Vincent Toronto, you're on the line. Turn your turn your show down. Turn the show down, man. You know that better? As long as I can't hear myself, it's better. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You don't like the sound of your own voice? Uh, you know, I, I occasionally will listen back to things, but once you've done as many shows of, as I've done, you kind of just, yeah, it, it's one of those things. I, I've heard about actors who refuse to watch themselves in movies. Now, I'm not on that level, but there is some some element of it. You just feel, I don't know, you feel embarrassed to listen to yourself. You know, I, I went back and watched some of the early episodes, and, you know, it, it's definitely an improvement, Jason, because no, no offense, you were really monotone, you know, back in the day. I was what? I, I, what? Okay, sorry. Monotone. All right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean back in the day? How far back are we talking, Vince? Uh, I like the first couple episodes, maybe. Oh, of this show. 
Yeah. Well, I'm I'm shocked because I thought I had uh, I thought I had already kind of gotten to the point where I had you know had some personality on there. That is not what we're here to talk about. I'm sure you're not calling in on a Friday <laughs> no, no. to talk about uh, my progression as a broadcaster. What's on your mind today, Vince? Uh, you know, Jason, how how fun does the East look this year? I mean, outside of Philly, who, who can't seem to really do anything uh, noteworthy. Um, between Agudelo coming back, Jovinko apparently coming to Toronto at the start of the season, uh, you know, D.C. doesn't really have to change much because they're already a pretty strong team. Orlando and New York making their moves. New York Red Bulls kind of pulling themselves out of the gutter by getting question. Um, and Montreal, you know, retooling a lot. This is this is going to be a pretty fun uh, Eastern Conference this season. Yeah, look, I think I don't overlook Columbus certainly down there. Um, this is it, it should be an interesting season. I mean, with the the extra playoff spot, you could argue that that waters things down a bit. And I'm not for expanding the playoffs to more than half the teams in the league. And yet here we are. But at the same time, you're going to have some pretty fierce competition. I. I I'd be int- I'm going to be interested to see how good DC United is going to be this year. I-, I don't know if last year was an aberration necessarily. I think they had a good plan. They had good coaching. They got good performances out of guys like Espindola and Silva and Perry Kitchen. But it's going to be interesting to see if they're going to be that good this season. I mean, you always got the Eddie Johnson factor, right? Is he going to is he going to put his ego aside? Probably not. But well, is he right, going to, you know, try to play more for the team. Can he be healthy? Is Spindola gonna? I believe he's on a DP contract now. Is he going to be able to uh, up his game to match you know the firepower yeah, he, that Orlando he, City's going to have, that Toronto's going to have? Um, you know, is Bradley Wright Phillips going to going to? Uh, I don't think he's going to repeat a season, but can he be that consistent uh, threat up top, especially with uh, Thierry Henry obviously retiring? Um, and Tim Cahill possibly leaving uh, New York. Um, you know, I, I, it's definitely exciting. And people always like to talk about how the West is so strong. Yeah, Maybe it still is. Rough. You know, the West could be considered I mean, a better conference. Wow. But I, I think the East is, is going to be more exciting. Vince, personally. Uh, Vince, okay, maybe well, you could argue that the teams in the East are closer together. Okay. That, and I think that's going to make for some exciting battles in terms of the standings. Um, but when you look at the West, especially now that sporting has moved over, and who knows what Owen Coyle is going to do in in Houston? I mean, they obviously had a down year last year, but th- that's a good organization that that has typically been among the better teams in in, uh, in the league. So Houston and Sa- and Sporting move over to the West, and now you've got I mean, just the top half of the Western Conference in terms of L.A., Seattle, Portland, uh, Sporting. Uh, who am I missing? I- I'm obviously missing somebody. I mean, FC Dallas under Oscar Pereja is a great team uh, to watch and a and a potential challenger for things. I mean, I don't expect the Rapids to be very good. Um, you know, RSL, who I left out, RSL is going to be good again. So it's a, it's sort of a, a, a different level of maybe there's tiers in the in the West, clear tiers between teams in the Western Conference. Whereas in the East, it's much more of a morass, and it's so much of a morass that you could you could really easily talk yourself into believing that Orlando City is a, a playoff team. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the way I look at it, I guess, is the West will be, you know, more of a coaching battle, right? Arena versus Schmidt versus Porter uh, versus uh, 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 Jeff Kassar. Um, while in the East, you got the players, right? You got Altidore, Jovinko, Kaká, David Villa. Um, and so, you know, uh, 
it's 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 a, it's a contrast there. I mean, and just you know, I want to get your opinion. Like, what's up with Philadelphia, man? They seem to be the only team that's not doing anything major. They're kind of just watching a good all the other teams pass them by. And, like, it's it, ridiculous. Here's some fortuitous timing. I'm going to let you go, Vince, because my next phone call is coming in from Jonathan Tannewald, who happens to cover the Philadelphia Union. So before we get to whatever John wants to talk about, I'll ask him uh, Vince's question. John, what's going on with the Philadelphia Union? <laughs> They've just fired one of their PR people. Is what's going on with the union at the moment, which has me a little angry. Okay, well that's I, I understand that. Well, let's let's focus on the field here for a second. I'm I'm with you, but let's focus on the field for a second. Vince in Toronto seems to think that Philly is not doing enough to keep up with everybody else in the East. So do a lot of people down here. You believe that to be the case? I mean, look, Jim Curtin is. Hey, it's it's great that he's there, and it's great that he's a local guy, and and they have this enthusiasm. But where are the pieces to help them get better? I want to believe Jim Curtin when he says that they aren't done shopping yet. You want to believe that? Yes. But, um, but, you, but you have some doubts. It's not his fault. Okay. I like him a lot. I think that the union just don't have the money in the organization to go out and just do some of the things that they need to do, even if it means paying a little more than they might like to. What does that uh, What does that mean for your you know your outlook on the season? Again, everything's shopping's not necessarily done. Certainly, the window's not done. But what does that mean for your outlook on their season? I'm not inclined to believe they'll make the playoffs. That's for sure. Uh, well, I mean, and that again, I sort of out, I sort of talked about this. It's even more difficult to miss the playoffs now than ever before. Yes, you have two new teams, but these are expansion teams. They're not supposed to be very good. If you're the Philadelphia Union and you're established, you've been around. When there are six of ten teams making the playoffs, you should be in that mix. Well, I have a hunch that two of the first people who voted for the expansion of the playoffs were Andrew Houtman in Chicago and Nick Sakevich in Philadelphia. <laughs> that would be a, a, a nice, uh, a nice Anthony safety Anthony Precourt might have been third, but I'm not sure. Okay, fair enough. Uh, what, was your, what was the reason for your call, John? I, I railroaded you with those questions. <laughs> quite all right. Um, been a lot of questions from the listeners uh, of late about MLS Live. Ah, and, yes. Um, I figured if I was going to answer them all at once, better to do it on here than doing 140 characters at a time. Uh, yeah, you know, I had already made a note to bring you on Monday, but if you want to jump in and do it now, we certainly can sketch out what, what's happening with MLS Live and how it relates to the ESPN deal, which I think is the question most people have. I'm happy to come back on Monday and do it at greater length. Oh, well, we'll always have things to talk about. Uh, well, here's what I understand. When ESPN did this deal, they bought they bought the digital rights. The out of the, well, the, the more than that, they bought the out of market broadcast rights for online and television for all major league soccer games not on national TV. That remains the case, and that is part of why they put so much money on the table. Um, I spoke with people at MLS yesterday. I spoke with people at ESPN yesterday. A lot of people who normally tend to be fairly talkative were very, very, very closed up, which doesn't normally happen hmm. and tells me that there might have been some disagreements behind the scenes about all this. ESPN said that after the negotiations that they had, um, the decision was made to continue with MLS Live for this year, which implies to me a couple of things. One is 
they've only made the decision for this year, which I think is absolutely the case. Okay. Whatever they do this year bears no reflection on the remaining seven years of the deal. Um, the official statement was, and this was, they gave it to me, they gave it to Recode Awful Announcing. A couple other people. Our collaborative relationship with MLS is long-term. Together, we discussed several potential options for the out-of-market games and determined that having them exclusively on MLS Live and MLS Direct Kick was the right option for this season. What, what, what's, the, what's the implication there? I mean, are we supposed to assume that they just didn't have their ducks in a row quickly enough in order I to pull this off? I think that's part of it. Okay. Uh, is, there, is there a money element, too? I mean, I explain, I think, well, some of the I, question I don't, is... Okay, I don't think it's... Somebody said that somebody's like, you know, MLS is trying to get money back out of this or ESPN is trying to get back money out of the No, they're not. Okay. People at ESPN are a lot smarter than that. Um, yeah, sure enough. I think, you know, the, the original, in the original deal, the provision was ESPN gained the ability to put, um, to put, all the non-national TV games on ESPN3.com. Yes. This is what a lot of people wanted. Yes. And we're very happy about this deal happened. Now, they never said explicitly, we're going to do it. Ah. And I went back and read the releases, read what I wrote at the time, lots of other things. And I think the best way I would characterize it was nothing that they said was false in the way that New York City FC claiming that they had signed Frank Lampard as a designated player was false. Uh. <laughs> ESPN has some smarter lawyers in the room, perhaps, than some of the people who wrote that press release for NYCFC. Uh-huh. Um, I then got an email this morning from ESPN, and I know this isn't... You've had people come on here and try to talk about cricket and fail miserably. Give me five seconds to explain this. They've got the rights to the Cricket World Cup. Okay. They're, all of their broadcasting of it is going to be on a dedicated subscription service for, which is streaming and pay-per-view through companies that they've agreed deals with, which so far are Dish Network, Media, Common Time, were. When I got this release, I said, hey, wait a minute. They figured out the over-the-top payment platform that they didn't do for Major League Soccer. Uh-huh. Because the hunch within the industry was ESPN was going to run, in addition to putting games on ESPN3, part of the... What I know is that in the MLS deal, there was a provision that said anybody who wants to watch games will be able to do it, whether that's through ESPN3 or buying a subscription. Okay. The, the, the question yesterday was maybe ESPN doesn't have the payment platform ready to go yet ah. and but, make it work right. Okay. Um, I, I, my, my, my head is swimming. I'm confused. All I know is, I mean, look, I, I think part of it is, is let's make this as simple as possible uh, in the first year. When, the, simplest, the, the simplest way possible is that ESPN made this decision. Yes, that, that okay. Not Major League Soccer, so stop blaming Major League right, Soccer. Sure. Now, I, I, I do want to note, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, full disclosure, there were a couple of years there when I don't think I play, paid for MLS Live, but I have paid for MLS Live at various points over the last five years or so. And if I remember correctly, I paid for it last year as part of the recurring subscription, and I don't think it was sixty four ninety nine for the early bird price. But So that seems to have gone up. I, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's just... You know, they need to make that adjustment to continue to carry the infrastructure. I, I don't know, John, but is there anything to be said about the price of MLS Live in 2015? Not from where I sit, because it's still okay. a lot cheaper than all the other leagues out there. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I think that there's sticker shock for people who remember the original 
uh, iteration of MLS Live when we first got streaming games, and I think it cost you thirty five bucks for the year or something like that. I mean it it was it was much much cheaper than it is now. Um, but but as you said, I mean, I think for the general public and people jumping on board and and the rest of us, we need to a real we need to realize that it is a bargain to be able to see all of those games. Now there are blackout rules that piss people off on occasion, and there are some wires crossed and. It doesn't always run smoothly, but I think as it goes, and you'd be in a better position to say this than me, it's probably uh, among the top two or three streaming platforms for professional sport leagues out there. I'd say a couple of things. One, if they're going to keep jacking up the prices, they have to they have to give something back to the fans in return. I would personally like that to be um, giving the choice of broadcaster. Choice of broadcaster. Yeah. which they don't have the infrastructure together to do yet, and I have complained very, very loudly to people at MLS about this repeatedly. Um, and the answer is it costs a lot of money for all of that satellite transmission, which I understand, but I'd still like them to do it at some point. Um, I also... Let me see here. It was Match, uh, match Day Live was $53 last year. Okay. In the pre, with the preseason discount. Got it. So we're talking about you know eleven bucks, twelve bucks, uh, something like that. There are also a lot, many more than I thought there would be, loopholes in the local blackout policy. Meaning what exactly? This, meaning local markets that can watch their games online. Ah, I see. Okay. Which which every other the NFL not the NFL doesn't have it. The NBA, Major League Baseball, and the National Hockey League do not allow it all. Fair enough. Okay. Um, as I read this right, New England, or in terms of the U.S. markets, New England, Orlando, Philadelphia, which is huge because their regional sport, sports network isn't carried on satellite platforms like Dish and Direct TV. What I, so, okay, well, let's get loud over Orlando, there. Philly, Breaking news Salt Lake in Philadelphia, City, San Jose, uh-huh. um, and a couple Canadian markets. I think it's okay. nine teams total. Uh, well, that's, there are no local blackouts. That that is good news. It, it, MLS Live is a look. I, I've I have no beef with MLS Live, or I haven't over the last couple of years. My only my only real issue is that when I watch through my Roku, it's so la- it's so lagging behind. I can't Dump the Roku I, and get an Apple TV. I, I, I sh- I'm, probably, I'm actually needing an upgrade an upgrade on my streaming device. I think Apple TV may be the way to go. Jonathan Tannenwald, the goalkeeper on Twitter from Philly.com. Just jumping online. Uh, let jumping me say on one other thing real quick, and I'll let you go. I, the one market where I think they should try to drop the local blackout with MLS Live is Columbus. Yes, and I was going to bring that up. Columbus has a serious issue with access to their local broadcasts. I, it's something um, I, I can't recall the issue, but there is there was a lot of uproar over who their, they signed their that deal channel with. isn't widely distributed. Yes, a, a very limited uh, reach for the channel that they signed their local deal with. That needs to be cleared up. If you if you're going to have that problem, you want your local fans to be able to watch the game if they can't make it out of the state. Stadium, get rid of that blackout issue. I, I appreciate the uh, chime, uh, the chiming in, John, on the MLS Live issue. And yeah, I think we've uh, established some uh, information that people were looking for. Appreciate it, man. You're welcome. There goes Jonathan Tannewald, and that means we're going to wrap up this edition of Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. I already mentioned it, but I'll do it again. Please go to iTunes. Give us a rating and a review. It takes like five minutes to do so. Uh, go to 3DLFC.com to buy your T-shirt, your Soccer Morning T-shirt. Support the show that way. And the mugs are at backheel.com slash store. You should be checking out backheel.com in general for all of the podcasts and stuff that we got going on at backheel.com on Twitter. 
as well. And uh, today is the last chance I'm going to have to tell you to go to podcastawards.com and nominate Soccer Morning for the best sports podcast. Sports, that's where we need to be. There's there's no soccer category, it's sports. Let's own that. All right, let's try that. Uh, I don't know. All right, thanks a lot to our guest today, Michael Goodman, uh, Rafael Naboa y Rivera, and uh, obviously Jonathan Tannewald there jumping on. Vince, uh, appreciate your phone call as well. We'll talk to you guys on Monday. Enjoy your soccer. Bye.